Welcome to Live the Fuel, where we fuel your health, business, and lifestyle. And now your host, Scott Mulvaney. All right, good day, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another Live the Fuel show. So, this evening as I'm recording this, I am excited to bring on, yes, yet another new guest co-host for the newer listeners. This is what we do. It's not all about me. It's about the uh, the genius behind the, my co-hosts. And this new co-host for you also happens to be a podcaster. That's how I stumbled across him. But before we dive into that, let me give you more skinny on this guy. He was trekking around the world, I believe. That's why we couldn't really lock him down until now. But he's an award-winning professional climber. So he's got me beat there. Well-recognized filmmaker in the outdoor industry. That's why I'm also a fan. And he works as a producer and director of development with Bedrock Filmworks, through which he is able to utilize his extensive logistics, rigging, marketing, media expertise, a whole lot more, guys. I mean, all while maintaining his role as an athlete in the outdoor industry. He's also well-connected with a favorite company of mine that I found when I became a wildland firefighter years ago, REI. REI will actually be a chapter in my new book, but there's more behind that as well. So without further ado, I believe I can call him the host of Wildfire, the podcast that helped me find him. Uh, this is Graham Zimmerman, our new guest co-host. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, delighted to be here. So, Psyched you found me. Do you call hosts? Is it co- is it, do you have co-hosts? Is it just hosts? Because there's two of you, So right? Yeah, there, there are two of us. So it's Jim yeah. Aikman and I. Right. Um, He's my he's my business partner and good friend and I, we refer to ourselves as co-hosts. There we go. Okay. Yeah. I, I I every once in a while I got some regular people that always come on the show. Like I bring on a sports psychologist and stuff like that. So I call her my you know regular guest co-host. But in the end, I'm the host because I found on the show. There's a lot of shows like you guys. You just kick it off, man. Two personalities rapping, telling the story, and um, I mean since we're already kind of geeking out and that's how I found you. I want the the listeners to learn a little bit about that too, but. When did you start the Wildfire Podcast uh, project? Because I don't know when it actually got founded. So, well, let's see. So we launched the we launched the show um, in the late spring, early summer um, okay. of this year, and we, we you know, the whole project itself kicked off probably six months before that. So, okay, you know, this is it's pretty interesting because I so I've worked as a content creator um, primarily in filmmaking, but also. Also spend a lot of time on podcasts, spend a lot of time taking photos and writing things. Um, and so I'm always, I'm always looking for new, new cool ways to engage with content and engage with audiences. And I also, I also do a lot of work in the, uh, in the climate space in terms of climate advocacy. Oh, yes. and so when, so when I started kind of looking into the whole wildfire story, um, the whole kind of story of what's going on with wildfires in North America, um, it's really, it's really complex. It's something that um, really, you really need a lot of time to dig into and to dig into the details of. And as you know, podcasting is a great way to share a lot of information. You get a lot of, you've got a lot of time, you've got a lot of bandwidth. And, uh, and so we pivoted that into the podcast space. And I, I mean, at risk of uh, being a little arrogant, like I think it came together pretty well oh trust me i mean i've been podcasting for over three years so uh was that your first podcast you guys created uh-huh okay it was yeah so strong work yeah well it's so <laughs> i'll catch you on the back well i really appreciate that and I, I should i definitely need to give a big old shout out to evan phillips who um i think this was his fifth podcast but he's a uh is he one of he's producers, an or? audio producer and kind of podcast podcast ninja who's based up in anchorage and he was he wasn't a host on the show but he was very much like you know, a team member and like did all of our editing, did all of, you know, did a lot of the, uh, the most all of the music and had a lot of really strong insights. So, so, uh, well, it was Jim and I's first time making a podcast. We, uh, we definitely had the, uh, we had like the wizard in our back pocket. So, so. It sounds like he, he was like your, your ace in the back pocket, like, boom, let's just, let's uh-huh. lock it out. And then you realize, oh, when you got the right people on your team behind you, it, it does make it a heck of a lot smoother. So, Hey man, I mean, like anything, the team you have is what, uh, what, you know, what makes the magic happen. So I, I tell people all the time, like people come into my studio now here at my home office and it looks, I, I just redid it again. I'm, I'm always geeking out. I'm, you know, adding here, there, but just to make it 
I'm a geek, whatever. I'm an athletic geek. <laughs> Maybe you are too. And uh, it's funny because yeah. like, I tell people, like, when I set the podcast, I didn't do it myself. I reached out to a buddy. I told him what I was going to do. And he's like, oh, dude, I got a buddy of mine flying in actually in a couple of weeks, and he's an audio engineer. I said, I will fire up the grill. I will cook you guys dinner, swing over. I'll order whatever you want me to order, and let's just put, put it together. So that's Love what it. he did. And then we were geeking out with recording off of different microphones. And, and I, this is still the same mic that I started the show with. Cause he's like, man, he's like, you, you sound like a, a, a mix between like Barry Manilow and, and Howard Stern. And I was like, well, that, that's an interesting hybrid, but <laughs> if that's true, I'll take it. I mean, love technology. So <laughs> that's uh, awesome. I love but, it. So so obviously, we're, we're geeking out about wildfire, and there's more to you. We will on the show. That's the point. But again, I want to dig into it because for the newer listeners and why I have fire in my logo, and obviously it's in my wall art that fans have made for me, um, I got a few. I got a chance to take a risk. Uh, since you, I don't know how much you know about my background, but I hinted on you in the email that you know I, I decided to leave the corporate world years ago and go serve as a hotshot wildland firefighter. And I had no firefighting background. So being able to even land on a hotshot crew was like success in itself. And, you know, I spent two years earning my belt buckle. Uh, that, that's that's what you get. <laughs> and uh, I have friends of mine this day and they're like, wait a minute, you, you risked your life for two years and, and you got a belt buckle? And it's like, it's a damn nice belt buckle, man. All right. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's awesome. I, 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 that's why I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to rap with you today because I'm like, you know, how deep did he get in? Because, again, for the newer listeners, the Wildfire Show, it, it's eight shows, right? Eight episodes for the first season? Six. Oh, six. Okay. Yeah. See, there we go. Well, I thought there was an eight-part series. Or no? Uh, or is that the next No, series? six. No, it was like it was five, five kind of primary episodes and then, uh, and then one, one kind of final um uh, like kind of like like a close basically out. a bunch of actionables that you can get at. Okay, well, I mean, maybe that's why it flew by for me so well. And 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 can can we can we sneak hint that there might be a second season on this show? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, looks like we're gonna do a second season, and we're gonna be we're gonna be kind of expanding the uh, the breadth of the show in terms of looking looking internationally and kind of looking looking at like some different roles that wildfire play around the world yeah and, and actually for the for the people hearing this now you guys really targeted this first season on the tragedies of oregon and how you know there's a lot i mean there's this amazing park there that just hadn't had fire in that land for so many years and, and this is so common in wildfire people don't understand that and i i didn't know until i studied fire science went to a couple academies and then obviously served that most of the wildfires naturally occurring, especially in the Western U.S. with the drier humidities, uh, they, they're they actually started by Mother Nature. I mean, it's lightning strikes, and, and they usually are the more dangerous wildfires in these areas that might not have had prescribed burning or they had canceled prescribed burning, and you got these fuel beds that have built up over the years and not been managed naturally. And it's that's why I loved your show, man, because it's like— Oh, he's actually getting into that. Good. He's getting into that chapter. Like the next episode, I'm like, yes. I was like, I was sitting there like, oh, please tell me he digs into this on the next show. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how fired up I am to hear that you enjoyed it that much. I mean, yeah. we really put a lot of time into into what we covered on the show. And it's and it's tricky because, I mean, uh, I guess over the course of the show, we had, what, like two and a half hours of airtime to work with. Yeah. And, and, which is a lot, but it's also, it's a massive subject and it's a very complex subject. And we, you know, we focused in on one place geographically because it really gave us um, a strong story thread, which, as you know, is a really important part of conveying information is like making sure that you have some strong story to work with so you can, you know, it kind of acts as a mechanism through which you can provide that kind of core information about a subject. Yeah. And, and it's also it's also where we live. Um, my my business partner and co-host Jim is uh, is over in Portland and I, I live out in Bend. And so what we're talking about is a place that's familiar to us and it's really a personal journey of us trying to understand, you know, what's going on with wildfire in this part of the world. And, you know, and I, and I really, I really hope that that can relate out to what's going on in California or going on in the desert Southwest or even, you it's know, a good point right now, right? Because, out, out east. you know, California is on fire once again, as you and I are recording this and there's been, there's, oh, yeah. there's three, I, I can't stop keeping an eye on all this stuff once it's in me it's in me but it was there's three major fires that have been going on over the past week 
And for me, this is late season. Uh, as a Region 3 guy based out of Arizona, we traveled all over the West. That's what Hot Shots do. They ship you to all the crazy ones. You know, you're on a rotational cycle. Uh, but the, you know, our season would end by the end of September. Uh, and obviously, the Northwest, they would start later and then go, go later. But everybody's got their different start and end cycles. It's always a six-month period, you know, until you – time out or uh you know you hit that layoff period so and, and but i never got a chance to to fight a fire up in seattle or in washington or oregon we were on we were on a couple of assignments on the northern edge of california you know on that edge of oregon we, mm-hmm. we did idaho montana you know i never got a chance to go up to alaska so jealous of that one um but it's yeah, alaska, alaska had a really big fire season this year as well yeah like, yeah it was they were they were lucky because it was a wet season, the 2010-2011 when I served. Uh, we, we as a crew are unlucky because it's – I know this is so weird for people hearing this, but it's like we actually would look forward to fire because that's what we were designed to do, right? That's what we trained to do. We, you know, we, oh, yeah. You're doing 16 hours a day on the fire line. That's how you get paid. I mean, you're, you, don't, you don't make good money until you, you know, you're on fire assignment. So I always thought it was weird when we would sit there like, oh, man, just let's have another one rip off, man. Let's go. <laughs> So I mean, that's how it works. It is. And the one thing I appreciate about your show's format was you started off with a very polarized subject, you know, just introducing the topic of wildfire. And it's interesting because I dug into that history over the years. I have a bunch of different books here on wildfire that I found, one of which is actually the stories of the fires of 1910, which is how wild and firefighting was created. Uh, is oh, when. Yeah. Yeah, when Ed probably, pa- probably Ed- the, the big the big burn by Timothy Egan. Oh, uh, that's one of them. I do have it. There you go. So you've done your research. Uh, you know, I oh, mean, yeah. they, they, you know, they talk about like the Pulaski, which I have two Pulaskis hanging in my garage that I use for mountain biking trail work here back east. Because if I'm going to have a trail tool, I got to have the one that I used to swing on the line. And you know, that's one of the oldest you know wild and firefighting tools created by Ed Pulaski. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm going to warn the listeners right now. We may be geeking out a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, it's it's intriguing because I was intrigued to see where the show was going to go because you you dug into uh, one of the episodes I think it was aired on yeah hold on June fourth a natural phenomenon question mark loved that title I looked forward to that episode because I also assumed before I became a firefighter that a lot of these starts were you know human caused and. You know, a big part of your show was this huge polarized debate because specifically the fire you guys really targeted with this first season, you know, was actually started by mankind. It wasn't a natural phenomenon. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, because a lot of the complexity that we're getting at here is the fact that, you know, we talk about, we talk about climate change. We talk about smoke in the atmosphere, you know, living out here in Bend, you know, we talk about how we kind of have a smoke season now. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's like, you know, as we move later into the summer and things get hot, it'll get really smoky. And it's, it's this really challenging time because it's, uh, you know, a lot of people live here, like, such as myself, so that we can recreate outside. And it's ex- ex- extremely limiting to have a bunch of, you know, smoke and particulate in the air. Oh, yeah. And, and it's, and it's, uh, and, you know, and it's, it's interesting because, we say, okay, cool. Like there are more fire fires because of climate, but the answer, but like in actual fact, it's way more complex than that. It's all related to how we've managed fire, you know, over the last hundred years in this country, mm-hmm. it's all, it's, you know, climate change is certainly a component, but the answer is not to stop all the fires and stop all the smoke. Like you were alluding to before, you know, the solutions are actually, uh, to manage our forests more effectively so that they can burn naturally because mm-hmm. these forests require fire in order to, you know, in order to persist. Yeah. And so it's all about, it's all about kind of finding balance between like, yeah, like we're going to have some smoke that's going to be part of living in Bend, Oregon, but we don't have to have tons of smoke if we don't have these giant fires, right. which are very destructive. And the way that we do that is through more effective and smarter forestry management and there's also time of the season too so once you guys get this dialed back in because it, it takes a few years depending on depending on the area like i don't know how long ben didn't you know didn't have prescribed burning within its vicinity uh in 2010 2000 early 2010 when i went to an academy to help that helped me land uh, my job on a hotshot crew in colorado mm-hmm. uh, my, my instructor from from new york that i went he lived in colorado and he said hey He's like, if you want to get on a hotshot crew, you got to come out to another academy, take some advanced classes, network, connect, 
and maybe you can, it'll help you get on a cruise since you have no firefighting background. So the cool thing was he had a mitigation business on the side. So he would uh, uh, he would cool. prep the lands in the fall and the winter and then wait until the snow dumped. And so I was out there in January in Colorado. Well, there's snow in, in Colorado in January. And uh-huh. most, most of his customers, uh, I, I stayed for two weeks. He let me stay out there for free with him and his wife to help me afford the fire academy better. And I said, he said, he said, dude, just, just work for me. He said, when you're not in class, he's like, I got some stuff to teach you. And we would hike, you would drive out and then hike up into these remote properties that were, you know, in that what's called WUI, Wildland Urban Interface, W-U-I is the acronym that I learned at the academy. And they, you know, you go up and you burn slash piles, but the slash piles are from all the, all the grounds that he had prepped earlier in the year and, you know, thinned everything out to open it up so it was safer and then would wait until it was a low risk time of year to do the burn off and then burn those slash piles. And it was just, it seemed very managed, but he said, again, there's many areas that have not had management in many decades. And those are those big fuel beds that are very dangerous. So, Oh yeah. And I think that, I think in central Oregon right now, uh, they've been doing a really good job and it's very similar management strategy. I mean, we have like very similarly have a lot of snow during the winter which provides a really great season to get rid of that fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in a lot of places like California, it can be really hard because, uh, because you know, it's not getting as cold as it used to. No. And therefore you don't have these seasons when it's safe to, you know, to set prescribed burns and things like that. So it's like, True. you know, they, in some of these areas they are in a pretty tricky spot. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing. I mean, California, just like, just like Denver, Colorado is known for their long periods of day, of daylight, right? Sunshine. And that's another big thing from the fire science things is that people don't realize like, okay, well, like when you're a little kid with a magnifying glass and, and you could focus that sun and you know, maybe burn a little bug or something. If you were a little geek with that, <laughs> some people did that. I don't know if I did yeah. or not. I can't remember. But <laughs> the point is that uh, relative humidity, the, the, you could have cooler temperatures, but if the, if the humidity is super low and that means it's very, very dry and you have still long periods of daylight, you have great conditions uh, for fire spread because that's what helps. Oh, yeah. I, I learned that the hard way too. Like, oh, wow, you, you can go to sleep because hot shots, we would camp out there on the side of a mountain with fires and you wake up in the morning and you'd have that little bit of smoky mist. And then as the sun would rise and you would approach the hottest part of the day, maybe, you know, closer to 2 p.m. in the afternoon, that's when things are all woken up. I mean, from 2 to 4, you know, things are ripping. Uh, but when you first wake up in the morning, you could be laying right next to a fire that was on something was on fire the day before, and it's just sitting there smoldering and flickering and waiting to kind of awaken with the sun. So yeah, yeah, oh yeah, totally. It's it's cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean it's it is a uh, I mean all the stories that we dug into about fire and about like about firefighting. I mean it is a super dynamic element, and it responds very quickly to environmental changes. And that is, I mean, it seems to me that's really the crux of dealing with it is, is like, it's not just the fire where it is now, it's where it's going to be an hour from now or 10 hours from now and how you can get ahead of it and how you can contain it effectively, well, which is really hard. It is very hard. And, and actually I bring me back to that acronym, WUI. Uh, when I studied in 2010, uh, I didn't know what that was. Actually it was 09 when I took my first classes on it and then moved out to 2010, but they, they had just created that course, and people are like, this is a newer course for the curriculum, WUI, Wildland Urban Interface, because the two worlds didn't always have to collide before. And what I'm referring to is structure firefighting and mm-hmm. wildland firefighting. Wildland firefighters do not protect houses. We're not supposed to. Well, at least we weren't. You know, you can help mitigate the area around the properties, try and slow the chances of spread into that vicinity. But if we would get assigned to a region, we would go through and inspect each property. And it's like, oh, is it worth our lives? Is it not? And then you would flag the mailbox and move on. If, they, if people had way too much landscaping and they didn't listen to the law about trying to keep stuff away from your building, there's all these things. And they said, years ago, WUI was, wasn't needed because we didn't have the population spread that we, we now have. And California is a perfect case study that people want to get out of the city and they want to keep pushing deeper and deeper into the beautiful countryside. But what you're doing is you're actually increasing your exposure and risk to these wildfires because you've, you're now totally. further out. You're further remote. It's crazy. People don't think about these things. Well, it require. I mean, it requires really, uh, you know, it's kind of at this like core level if you're going to live out close to nature you have to understand Mm -hmm. nature 
And in a lot of these places in the American West and around the world, you know, fire is a very important and dangerous component of that natural space. And it's something that, you know, just like flooding and landslides and, you know, which California you know, has a lot of as well, especially totally, after, especially yeah, yeah, after a wildfire. Talking about like wild, oh, yeah. why why California is getting hosed right now, um, <laughs> but you know it's like just understanding like what you know kind of what you're getting yourself into. Like mm-hmm. you know we don't like when you move out of the urban space, you are moving into a space where you're going to interact with the natural world, and the natural world is not always a particularly kind place. Yeah, I mean, and and to protect California, they're not the only ones. They just happen to be a really huge state. With a lot of areas that are very well exposed, this is why there, you know, Cal Fire exists because California is so prone to wildfires because they are so big and they are so exposed and they are so dry and they're so populated. Uh, that's why they have such a huge budget and they literally call it Cal Fire. And California manages most of their wildfires themselves. Uh, but yeah. I mean, they have an impressive Air Force uh, water patrol. I mean, every, they have they have everything that the federal government has, which I served with, but. In the end, they still end up having to pull us in, you know, for reinforcements when the time is mm-hmm. right. But for, for many often, many oftentimes earlier, earlier in the fire seasons and stuff, they got everything unlocked on their own. I mean, they they're just rolling with it. They've they've got a good handle, so they try. Yeah, it. they've got you know they've had to figure it out. Man, it's a very expensive it's, uh, budget though. Right. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a big. Um, but even Colorado, like you were talking about Oregon, uh, Colorado was the same way. I mean, 2010, outside of Boulder, Colorado, I got to fight on a fire called the Four Mile Canyon Complex. You ever been out to Colorado? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, so just over the mountain ridge from Boulder, behind the Flatirons, there's a whole valley back there, and it's really skinny, and beautiful little like secondary homes, or for some people, they're primary homes, and they're very small little cabins and stuff. But that development was called the Four Mile Canyon uh, Complex. Totally. And that sucker ripped off in 2010 because we were. This was at the end of our fire season. We got shipped up there, and I remember because I never seen a motor, like a, a, a jeep, old jeep wagoneer motor. It looked like a, a puddle of molten metal from like the Terminator movie. It just, you just you're, you're walking up, and the entire earth is just scorched off. There's no property left. I mean, you might see some crumbled up cinder blocks from the structure, and then you see a burnt chassis of a vehicle. And there's no rubber left, just the metal from inside the tire. And then you see this shiny surface, and you walk up, and you're like, oh, that was the motor block. Like, the entire motor <laughs> melted into a puddle. And yeah. That's how hot That's how hot some of these fires get. So. Yeah, particularly. And it's like, in, in a lot of these fires don't naturally get that hot. No. Like, in, a, in like, the natural, in, in like, the natural cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's because of these fuel buildups that you get, these, like, exceptionally hot fires that aren't really that great for the environment they're not like fire uh kind of in its natural state in these forests is very restorative is very important oh, like yeah. on ponderosa pine, ponderosa pine. Actually, yep there yeah they, they like require um require fire to actually open the seed pods but, yeah. but then we get a lot of fuel buildup you end up with much more fuel that can burn a lot hotter and it becomes it becomes something that's more destructive yeah and you get you get things that are that are that hot because you can imagine if it's melting an engine block um you know it's it's really it's really not that great for uh, i drove pa- i drove i was just well. in colorado last week and i was in boulder and i happened to take a detour out there with my wife because she's like where are we going and i said i want to see if this canyon has regrown in the past nine years and it's still pretty barren because it burned that yeah. hot in there and that yeah. you, what you just said because you actually brought that up on your show and a lot of people don't realize that there are natural species on this planet, like the ponderosa pine, big, beautiful, very thick barked trees that are all over Arizona, Colorado, even northern New Mexico. I'm not sure. Is that the same? Does that breed of tree also exist in Oregon? The ponderosa. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we've got lots of ponderosa around so, here. They're big, massive, beautiful trees. trees. Yeah. And if you have casual fire ripping through there, even if it moves fast, you want it to move fast. You don't want to stall and just sit there and super nuke off. You'll get a little black charring on the outer part of the bark. But then it's like, I'm good. And plus, to your point, yes, it activates the seeds. And actually, that allows them to literally grow new trees naturally in Mother Nature. Uh, But you get the temp too hot. Something else that we didn't really get to get into in the show, this is kind of much more of a personal thing, but these forests like we have in central Oregon, these Ponderosa forests, mm-hmm. where you have a pretty clear underbrush and just these amazing big trees, like they're they're amazing forests. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's like uh, the fire clears that stuff out. It's but when you have these forests with a bunch of 
dead junk in there mm -hmm. you know uh, that fuel is like not like it kind of makes the forests a less uh I don't know. Must have a nice place to hang out. Yeah, because you like, can't like, you can't hike through, walk through. Um, yeah. The, and again, the benefits of having these like naturally um, these forests with like a natural a fire cycle in them, like it makes for like a nicer place to hang out. And that, that kind and of that's thing exactly cool. what you're doing because yeah. uh, you have like medium sized trees trying to steal life literally from the more mature trees. And that's why there's actually what's called thinning projects, because when we had a slow part in the fire season, we would go through and thin areas, especially near roads to help uh, dissipate uh, the risk of a fuel bed existing right up on a road. That way, God forbid a fire did get started. It could burn through the forest naturally like it would do, but you don't want to slam the road and then jump onto the other forest over there that was, you know, there was nothing wrong with it. So we would do totally. lots of these uh, hiking and thinning projects. But the point was you you want those trees to thrive on their own. But if it's so heavily choked up, you know, there, there's photosynthesis, there's sunlight, there's water. Everything is robbing from Peter to pay Paul. So these natural yeah. thinning out processes by wildfire help keep those forests healthy. So just like yeah. you're saying. Totally. And yeah. they're more beautiful. <laughs> so, so Absolutely. So let's 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 do a segue. I mean, we're, I tell everybody we'll have all this linked in the show notes on livethefuel.com. You're gonna go subscribe to Wildfire. You're gonna listen to it, and that way, when the second season comes out, you'll be ready to rock like I am because I'm all subscribed. I've already listened to every single episode like three times. So uh, That's awesome. I might be a super fan. <laughs> so cool. I, 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 now, now I want to dive in a little more behind you, man, because I knew you and I were gonna geek out. And right before you started the show, you mentioned obviously the pro climbing. And I never, I, I want to give people more behind the scenes why you guys do what you do, because not everybody can just say, you know what, I'm going to start a podcast on Wildfire. Oh, and get it sponsored by REI, which is SCORE, because uh, they're a great company. But, you know, part of that is because of the people you surround yourself with, right? The people that you connect with. And I truly believe that because I've had to learn that over the years that we have a choice of who we surround ourselves with. Um, you know, there's lots of famous quotes out there that reinforce this, but you know, obviously the tragedy in Oregon triggered this, but your lifestyle helped keep you around all of this, you being a pro climber. I mean, what, what did you do before climbing? What kept you in that outdoorsy market? Um, gosh, my, I mean, my origin story is kind of all over the place, but I started climbing in high school and, nice. and <clears throat> I, so I was originally born in New Zealand. Um, from from New Zealand originally, and uh, and then moved to Seattle when my folks moved there when I was uh, four or five. Okay. And uh, and so I so I started climbing when I was in uh, when I was in high school. Kind of got exposed to it through um, skiing and snowboarding on the volcanoes just outside of outside of Seattle there. And by the time I was eighteen, I was pretty clear that what I wanted to do was get into hard mountain climbing and it's kind of hard to pin down precisely what attracted me to it but um kind of the, the easy answer really is that it's it's a pretty um it's a pretty amazing combination of uh mental and physical exertion mm -hmm. in one of the most beautiful places imaginable i'm with you it's, it's a big part of what's behind live the fuel so keep going. Totally, I'm loving it. Totally. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, it's, and it's, and it's, I mean, for, you know, for whatever reason, it's, you know, it's just turned, you know, pretty quickly turned into my favorite thing to do. And so I moved down to New Zealand, uh, attended university down there, studied, uh, studied glacial hydrology. And um, now there's something you want to say five times fast glacial yeah. hydrology <laughs> how water how water flows over through and under glaciers, basically. A lot of it's, uh, a lot of it is associated with how they, uh, how they actually move. Okay. And, uh, and so I studied that down there while, um, while essentially cutting my teeth in the Southern Alps and the Southern Alps of New Zealand are pretty amazing mountain range. They're not super tall. The highest peaks are, um, between like 12 and 14,000 feet. I think uh, I could, I could be a little now the shot there. that I'm sharing um, for our video watchers on YouTube. This is ladies and gentlemen, you'll be able to, again, this will all be in the show notes, gramzimmerman.com. I'm on the about page. Is that where, where's that picture from? So this photo is uh, this is a first ascent in the Wrangell St. Elias range of Alaska. Okay. So this is um, I think this is on day uh, I guess day two of the first ascent of the west face of Salino Peak, which was a uh, which is like a six thousand foot big steep technical thing. 
in uh, in the Wrangell St. Elias. So that's what I love about this because I- I've hiked a few 14ers when I live in Colorado, and it's not always about the altitude because like you could just look at this terrain. I mean, you got some good gnarly technical stuff here, man. It's it's fun. Looking. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean the thing. So as an athlete in the climbing realm, the thing that really gets me going these days is uh, is things that haven't been climbed before are really steep and really hard and are in remote big mountains. And big does not mean eight thousand meter peaks. I mean most of those mountains are crawling with people. They're covered in fixed ropes and things like that. Oh, but Everest is a mess. Instance, yeah. And I mean, it's like, and if that's the experience you want is to go climb the highest peak on the planet and that's, then that's great. I mean, it's like for sure, uh, it's an endurance feat and all that, but like, it's not, it's not exploratory. It's not, um, and it's not really wilderness experience. Whereas we spent the whole summer in the Pakistani Karakoram trying the, uh, the East face of Linksar, which is an unclimbed 7,000 meter peak. And, uh, it was unclimbed before you guys attempted it. Uh huh. Oh. Yeah, I think that our expedition was the ninth expedition to try it, and we made the first ascent, which was sweet. Sweet. Um, and it was really hard, and um, and it was you know it was like this amazing exploratory wilderness experience with like some of my like you know some of my best friends. These guys, you know, it's like these guys who I climb with. You know, I have to trust them so much. It's like, uh, you know, so it's 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 a super outstanding experience. And then it's really, you know, to kind of connect that into the whole content and filmmaking and podcasting realm. Um, I really got into content creation and filmmaking and writing and things like that because um, I really wanted to, I wanted to share these experiences I was having. And I really felt like, um, how do I put this? Uh, I felt like, you know, like we have a choice of what we do with these experiences and we can keep them to ourselves and that's what we want. That's great. But for me, it creates a lot of value in the climbing that I do and the resources that I put into it, the time and money that I put into it. Um, if I can share that and utilize that as a tool to encourage others to do what they want to do. And that was kind of the root of why I got into content creation, particularly around climbing. And that's, and that is grown and bridged out to a whole variety of, of different you know different projects and things that i've worked on some of which have you know not very much to do with climbing but um but it's all about it's all about storytelling and portraying portraying information and inspiring people to you know do cool shit and have a great relationship with our mother earth and and uh you know go out and have fun and be good and be well and all that well the one thing i liked that you threw in there was before the doing cool shit, which I, which I'm totally up on, is your earlier point on surrounding yourself with the right people and building that trusting relationship, and you know part of live the fuel. Fuel means actually it's an acronym. You know, fired up epic life. Live the fired up epic life. And because I created that after I spent years using somebody else's famous quote from Ernest Hemingway, which is live life to the fullest. And I used that as I kept growing my adrenaline junkie background and the sports and like racing mountain bikes and then slowly getting into climbing, which I don't have a clue about that until I finally moved to Colorado and my roommates were both, you know, backcountry mountaineers. So it's like, you couldn't have asked for better dudes to get to know and to bond with. And you're all right, dude. Like you're ner- the, the nervous feeling of, you know, setting your first sport route, let alone trad. And then let alone doing 14 ers all of that got easier if it, if you kept training and working with, with your, your buddies, like these are people that you just connect with because you're risking your life with it. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. We're bringing this up right now. I, and I, I have to connect it because I'm finishing my first book and I'm not a writer, but now I am. Uh, but it's going to be about, so you want to be a hotshot is going to be the title and I'm giving all the proceeds, you know, to nonprofit. And once I, once it goes out there, but I have a chapter in that titled brotherhood and, there's that brotherhood. I mean, would you word it any differently? I, I call it brotherhood. It could be sisterhood too. There's some badass female climbers, man. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> there's girls yeah, who are just I, I like spider non, monkeys. Non-gender specific term. Uh, yeah. You know, we're supposed to. I just. But uh, but, uh, <laughs> but brotherhood, sisterhood, humanhood. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm all in. Yeah. It's, it's like, all I mean, bounded. It's all I mean, about. there's some girls I've climbed with, man. That they're, they're like spider monkeys, man. You you could not even peel them off the wall if you wanted to. So I, oh, yeah. I just oh it was. 
I, I told him, I mean, I'm married now. I just got married in, in March, but I told my wife, I'm like, dude, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, because she actually does at least half of the stuff that I do. And, and she's super cool and super smart. She's an equine horse vet doctor. And, um, she's really into the triathlons. Whereas I'm, you know, she'll, she'll go skydiving with me, but she doesn't really love to mountain bike. But, uh, when we first started dating, she, I was like, Hey, you want to go climb some routes? And she's like, yeah, she's like, I'll get a harness and shoes. I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't have to like go buy you a, a harness or shoes. You're at least halfway there. I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, but part of that brotherhood, sisterhood, the, the bonding, it does take you to a more spiritual level. And is that something that you like to tie into like your filmmaking and everything else? Is that a big fuel for the fire, so to speak? Like that, that partnership as it, yeah. as it, uh, I mean, for sure. And I think that, you know, a lot of this, uh, you know, the, to kind of link this back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, we were talking about how making the wildfire podcast is, it's Jim and I as mm-hmm. co-hosts and then our, uh, you know, and then our, our dear pal and editor Evan, and it's, you know, it's all about, it's all about creating a team. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, climbing, is for me it's like so it's so on the nose it's just like we are you know our lives are in each other's hands in such a literal way and i and i love that and it's great for it's great for storytelling it's something i really enjoy personally and all that but it but you know i think it applies um i think it applies across the board with all things that we do i mean i think that whether we're going to talk about fighting fires or climbing mountains or solving the climate crisis or whatever um you know we're all in this together and we all have to operate together as a team we you know we are so much more effective together than we are apart and i think that that's just uh you know i think that's a really a really important component with just about anything and i think with it's something that i really um try to try to work work on in everything that i do no, I'm loving this, man. I mean, I, and for the li- for the listeners, I'm screen sharing again as he as he and I are rapping because the the other site that will be linked on the website too is bedrockfilmworks.com. And since you said team, I I, you know, I had to go click on the team. And there's you know obviously Jim and you got a nice little bio on each of you guys. So for people who super super geek out like I do about outdoorsy nuts and everything else, I always want to make sure people could track this information down and easily find it. Uh, that's why we make sure we link everything on livethefuel.com because there's no question then. Um, but since I'm already here, uh, what's up with the documentary section of the site here? So you're, you guys are obviously niched in this. Well, I think that, you know, documentary um, refers to uh, telling true stories, yes. right? Um, well, it's supposed to. It's supposed to. <laughs> I, that's, uh, yeah, that's f- fair. There's, um, there's a few but, out there that aren't. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, in, in, in all storytelling probably involves some, you know, some embellishment or some leaving things out but um but like documentaries i see it is um you know is uh non-fiction storytelling uh particularly in the film or video format mm-hmm. and that's and that's really as a company what what we specialize in and um and that's something that uh jim is a climber as well he's also gone to film school and is a amazing storyteller so um you know that's that's what we work on um we do i mean we do a lot of commercial work as well but we really even in that work try to ensure that story and some kind of documentary component is a big part of you know what we're what we're crafting okay and uh and it's just you know stories and people and what people are doing it's just i mean it's just so potent that um it's just and there's so much of it to get at that uh that it's really, I mean, it's just something that we, we've gravitated towards. Well, I agree with that because it's funny. Cause like I'm, I, I, and again, I'm on the, they have a commercial section of their site, ladies and gentlemen at bedrockfilmworks.com. But it's funny cause I'm a gearhead, you know, if I, I, I'm, cause I'm a big green nut too. I'm all about recycling and being clean and, and try and leave nothing behind. Even when I do our trail work at the mountain biking, the park we take care of, you know, we try and keep, I can't stand it. I show up one day and someone decided to cut a whole new trail. I'm like, dude, you know, minimal footprint. Okay. You can enjoy the outdoors. You don't need to be cutting three trails to go the same way. What are you doing? Um, but I like the section of your site because that's how I connect when I purchase gear. Like I know that when I buy 
a draw, a, you know, quick draw or, or, or a beaner or something like it's going to stand the test of time, right? You're going to pay a little bit more upfront, you know, great companies like Patagonia who care about their footprint. Um, you know, you, on your site, you got, looks like you've done stuff with Thermarest, own it, Petzl, own it, REI, obviously I'm a member. So it's funny because like, that's how I connect with my gear purchases and I'm a sales and marketing mm-hmm. professional. So I, I like to cycle that in just quickly from a business standpoint on the show, because people like, it's not just about selling stuff. If you, if you share a great story and people see how a product or service can apply through a beautiful storyline, you've done all the sales and marketing you need. That's it. It, yeah. it doesn't have to be forced. <laughs> no, we want, I mean, we want to buy real stuff from real people. And yeah. That's uh that's, you know, and we want to see, we want to see people utilizing it authentically and, well, and especially when you got your, some of your documentaries, some of your stories, like, you know, you got, you know, Petzl products being used for fire. You got it used for the outdoors. And I love outdoorsy niched companies because most of them, especially the top end ones, do care about their, their footprint on the planet. They do care about yeah. usually the sustainability that goes into the design and manufacturing of their products. And that's something that I just learned over the years as I've dug deeper and deeper into different sports. And now I, I guess I, I purposely will spend extra time researching a company before I buy something. I yeah. want to make sure I'm, I'm partnering. I call it partnering and connecting with a company who gives a shit. <laughs> that's a, that's I mean, it's, it's, it's really important. I mean, that's being a, uh, being a conscious consumer, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, and I mean, to be, uh, to be frank, it's a lot easier in the outdoor industry than a lot of other industries. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's super important to uh, to understand the products that we're buying, where they come from, um, because that's you know that's that's a big part of how we drive change, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, you got to again find the right companies. I mean, this is you know, I'll go ahead and preach it. People hearing this, like that's a state, like just pause. Like you know, I go, I know Amazon's huge now here in the United States, but I got people who listen to this stuff all over the world, and it doesn't matter if you're in Europe, if you're in Mexico, you're in Canada, you're in Argentina. You know, depending on what you have access to, slow down, you know, take a peek. Do you even need it? There you go. Like, okay, well, I haven't broken that yet or destroyed that yet. So it still works. So I don't really necessarily have to get it. (laughs) And don't get me wrong. I'm a gearhead, but I do not get a new mountain bike unless I crack the frame. I've, I get a little aggressive with my mountain biking and yes, I've cracked two mountain bike frames over the years, but yeah, I got a lot of usage out of them before that happened. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, it's funny. Like I, you know, as a professional athlete, I get, I get a lot of gear sent in the mail. Um, but I do everything I can to make sure it doesn't go to waste. You know, if I have, I, I also try to like not have too much stuff Yeah. because, uh, I think part of living, living an examined life is not having too much stuff. Lying oh, out. you'll, you'll appreciate and, uh, that then. I, I got to pause on that. I, I, have, I have a minimalism section in that book. So, uh, because I went from a 2000 square foot, townhouse that I had here on the East coast when I was a corporate guy to, mm-hmm. I, I bought a 1999, uh, Subaru Outback wagon that already had like 180,000 miles on it, bought it for like three grand cash. And I said, okay, if my life doesn't fit in this car or on it, uh, I get rid of it. And that's how I moved out to be a firefighter. I had, you know, my mountain bike, my road bike on the roof, I had the skis in, in the interior. And then I had, uh, I think one of every size of the North face base camp duffel bags. And so, and then I had one mountaineering pack and I said, okay. So the funny thing was I got rid of almost everything except for like my gear. So I had a duffel bag for skiing. I had a duffel bag for the camping. I had a duffel bag for rock climbing. So I think my actual personal clothing fit in one bag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you, you can probably appreciate that. And I still have that bag system in my garage to this day. Like I have everything separated because I, I, that's how I track the volume. I'm like, okay, I've got enough gear. I don't need anything else. It doesn't need to go. I don't want to have too much stuff. So I, I just want oh, yeah. to pause on that. So, Oh no, it's important. Uh, as somebody who, you know, you still live in this car also, right. uh, it is a great foundation for making sure that you don't acquire too much stuff. It's also <laughs> great when you're, I, I, I traveled across the country like four times. So I've done more, you know, continental U S travel than international travel. Whereas nowadays now I'm actually doing the international travel now, but I, mm-hmm. I said, well, the beauty of everything fitting in your car is if I just want to pull over and, go climb a route. I'm good to go. Or, you know, let's take the bike off route and go, go rip some trail. So, and because of the bag system, I just drug a bag out of the way, grab that bag out. And you know, it was perfect. Like you want to pull over and camp, everything was ready to go out of the car. So oh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. 
Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I know, live in a house, which is awesome. <laughs> well, but, yeah, um... I have a house now too. We all grow up sooner <laughs> or later, but we can still tie those life lessons into this. And it sounds like yeah. you and I, even though I have a house now and I'm married, you know, we don't. I'm always reminding, okay, what's excess? Can I can I check myself? And I didn't think like that years ago. I needed to change how I was living, how I was surrounding myself with people, and you could still live a, a, a rich and full life and not have crap everywhere. <laughs> so oh, yeah. 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 It's uh I think it's a really important component. It's also just like, you know, clutter is stress. Yes, it is. It is. Stress is not that sweet. Thank you. Bring that up from a psychological standpoint. Yes, well said. It is. When I when I I look forward probably every month or two, I'll find like a couple of t-shirts cuz I when I go to sporting events and races or whatever, like you you get like a souvenir shirt or whatever. I'm like, "Okay, do I need this many t-shirts?" No. So I'll put together a bag and go to Goodwill or Salvation Army because somebody else can benefit from these clothes that I'm not even wearing. So totally. it's it's literally a monthly cycle. That way I never have excess. And I feel so good not having, you know, cluttered. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. So so what's next for you, man? We're coming towards the end of the show. We've got you – know, I'm, 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 happy, I'm so happy we're able to, like, align our schedules because I know you're, you're busy and you're getting out there and you being a pro athlete and climber. Like, dude, you get some epic travels. But – uh, I'm definitely a follower of your site and your on your social feeds now, and obviously I can't wait for the next uh, next chapter of of Wildfire <laughs> to come out. But what else is happening next for you? Well, um, let's see. So you know, for me, um, I spend a lot of time working on balance in life, and uh, let's to, to put it to put it bluntly, uh, this past summer. Uh, well, how about this? I so I I always you know it's always a balance between. Um, you know, my, my family, which is my wife and my dog. Um, and same here. And wife then, and dog, uh, that's it. <laughs> oh yeah. Dink, dink wads, dual income, no kids with a dog. Um, and, uh, and then, um, uh, and then the, you know, running, running bedrock film works and being a political advocate and then, uh, and then climbing. And it's, you know, it's like, you're never, I'm never going to do all of those well at any given moment. And this last summer I was out being a really great climbing athlete. We like did this big, hard thing. We spent all summer on it. It was awesome. Um, and so coming up, um, I'm going to be like doing a lot of, a lot of work with bedrock and a lot of political advocacy work as well. Um, nice. in the primary, primarily in the climate space. Um, I'm on the I'm on the athlete team with uh, Protect Our Winners, which is an organization that I've been super fired up to be working with for a while. I well, think, you're wearing the shirt today, so I'm wearing I'm wearing the shirt. Oh yeah, yeah. there you um, go, POW people. Oh yeah, and uh, and so that's so that's you know so working on the next season of Wildfire, working on working on a lot of the uh, kind of some other content projects, and then also like spending a lot of time uh, getting politically involved and trying to drive. Uh, systemic change in our country so that we can deal with the climate crisis. That's a lot of, a I lot think of what I'm up to. I mean, yeah. that's one thing I do like about the POW, you know, here, hold on for that video feed. Cause let's give them a little video shot as we bring the show to a close. So there, there they are. It is protect our winters.org. You know, I've, you know, they, I do, I, I spent 11 years as a USSA ski race coach. So Trust me when I say, I mean, I, I know about, I, I know about this site <laughs> and I, I've always been a donor to it. Uh, the, the, the climate shift that's happened in Colorado and how the winters have shifted so much. And, and to your point earlier in the show about wildfires and everything else, it's cool to see how an organization like this has actually grown in such a positive way. And mm -hmm. they've done it, I think, smartly, cleanly. Because when you get into, I, I, we don't talk a lot about politics on the show, but my my only suggestion to people is if you're gonna get into it, like be smart, be tactile, don't get into this explosive, I don't know stuff that's distracting. Like make it impactful. You know, make sure there's heart behind it. Make sure you got the right people on the team, the right athletes. I didn't even realize they actually had an athlete team. I, I how am I how am I missing that? Because um, actually, I think yeah, these guys yeah, Protect Our Winners is always supported by with the. Uh, every year, because we're such huge skiers, we we go we we start the season off a kickoff as a film guy. You'll appreciate this for, with a Warren Miller movie. So oh yeah, oh yeah. So in a week and a half, we'll we'll have our local uh, spot here in PA for the Warren Miller flick, and we all buy our tickets ahead of time. We all donate, and it's a big like. There's 20, 25 of us all go out and watch the movie to kick the season off. So. And, and yeah, I believe awesome. Protect the Winners is always promoted in those movies. So I think they have. A I good think partnership. that's. I think that's true. Yeah, I think we work uh, a lot with both Warren Miller and uh, Teton Gravity Research. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, and it's pretty cool. And I think one of the big things that we're working on right now is encouraging people that, uh, you know, kind of imperfect advocacy is okay. Because that's like a big, you know, we think about politics, politics are hard, politics are this thing where you have to be like, you have to be a perfect example of being a climate advocate to even talk about it. And it's not really the case. Like, you know, it's like you can, there are so many different ways to get involved. It doesn't mean being aggressive it doesn't mean like knowing everything about all the candidates that are up for you know in the primaries or whatever it's like it's all about being using your personal story to explain to others why it matters to you and more importantly explain to uh your um you know your public representatives so no well said and hold on i gotta do one more time there he is I, f- I found the team <laughs> under the hey. you're, you're under the uh, yeah the POW climb section. So actually, they have yep. a, I think it's called Climb Alliance, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Talk on. There it is. I didn't know Adrian was on there. Dude. Yep. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, you're aligned with some good people, man. Oh yeah, we've got we've got some uh, we've got some great folks on the team. It's awesome. Yeah, Emily's a spider monkey. I've seen some of her uh, stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. I'm a little jealous. So. This is awesome. Anyway, I was hinted we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, uh, we're going to have all this stuff linked in the show. notes like we've always done, ladies and gentlemen. So, again, if you have to take one action today, maybe it's going to visit protectourwinners.org. Uh, maybe you want to learn more about you know their filmmaking and stuff. So, obviously, go back and check out you know bedrockfilmworks.com. You want to learn more about Graham, go to grahamzimmerman.com. Uh, you want to listen to a kick-ass podcast for the second season about to launch, go watch Wildfire. And, well, sorry, listen to Wildfire. But as we close the show out, Graham, I ask my guest co-host, I don't really preview it because I know you're going to have some inspirational words from your lifestyle, uh, but I ask you guys just to help me close it out. Like what's, what's a closeout statement, final words that you just want to leave behind to people listening out there. And this is something bigger than just your brand, right? This could be an all encompassing message behind everything that you're trying to do in the world. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, Everything that I'm working on these days is, um, you know, both in terms of myself and what I want to portray to others is all about, you know, being bold, being safe and being smart and um, and really, you know, thinking about like what you do and the influence that you have on those around you to just be working on creating the kind of world that we want to live in. It's kind of it's kind of that simple. So that's what I would love to encourage uh you scott and all your listeners to to do well i need to have some good words and that's just it it doesn't need to be long it needs to be short sweet and to the point and you nailed it so uh i like that we need to surround ourselves (laughs) with the right people and make you know strong impactful decisions that can make positive things for our future so some great influence some great words i appreciate it thank you uh hang tight scott thank you man yeah absolutely hang tight i'm gonna give you proper goodbye off the air ladies and gentlemen I dropped all the sites. We dropped all the names. The guy's got a lot going on. If you're a geek about rock climbing or mountaineering, definitely follow him and his fellow athletes from Protect Our Winners. Uh, Again, some great final words to leave behind. So remember, ladies and gentlemen, we're here to fuel your health, your business, and your lifestyle. Graham definitely helped us do it today. Make sure you subscribe to his Wildfire podcast. And remember, you too can live the fuel. We'll talk to you guys again soon. Thank you for subscribing to Live the Fuel. Stay connected on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Live the Fuel. And remember, you too can live the fuel. So please visit us at livethefuel.com. 